Looking good, looking good. Like you know we should. Looking good today. You're listening to the Iron Mike Keenan Podcast. We're the five going strong. Welcome to the Iron Mike Keenan Podcast, episode number 16. Scott Morrison along with the coach, Iron Mike, and how are we this week? We're doing well, Scott, sitting up on Georgian Bay and enjoying some great weather for uh, this time of year and getting a few chores done as you prepare for the winter. So uh, Stanley Cup finished. Hard to believe a hockey season ends in September and uh, a bit of a drought until the next one begins. Thoughts on uh, the playoffs and, and the Stanley Cup final? Well, you give the NHL credit for keeping everyone safe. Uh, certainly a, a different way to go about it. And uh, uh, here we are late September, and now we have a respite for probably two or three months. Uh, interesting, my young sister said to me, you mean hockey's over now? So she's accustomed, as all Canadians are, that uh, we're just starting up at this time of year to watch hockey. So uh, it was a difficult challenge for all those players to be in the bubble and the staff and the, the entire NHL staff. They did a good job, but it takes away uh, a little bit. As you know, winning a Stanley Cup in front of uh, particularly your home crowd with that kind of energy and excitement, uh, you can't duplicate it. Uh, and uh, they did as well as they could, but uh, – Maybe they'll be able to celebrate now Tampa back in, in their home city and, and uh, at least share it with their fan base. When you think back to 94 and winning with the Rangers and how crazy Madison Square Garden was that night, could you imagine being in an empty building after going through that experience? No, I can't because uh, we couldn't even get out of our building till three or four in the morning. The fans wouldn't leave. Uh, they were so, as, as you know, so excited about the victory. But, uh, uh, and the energy in the building was exceptional. No one will ever forget the, the, the noise level as we won the cup. And, and uh, it was like the roof was going to be blown off Madison Square Garden. So once you've had that experience, it'd be difficult to, to feel that same way with an empty building for sure. So last episode, uh, we started talking about some great players that uh, passed through uh, uh, your way as an NHL coach uh, with Brett Hall, Wayne Gretzky, Mark Messier, some great stories about uh, coaching them in various situations. And uh, we're going to continue on that theme today. But I should mention just off the top that uh, these are just teases, sort of wet the whistle for uh, our viewers and listeners, because we're going to circle back in an episode or two and have a lot of these guys on as guests to further expand on those stories. So something to look forward to there. And uh, today uh, we're going to start off with uh, a Hall of Famer. They're all Hall of Famers so far, but uh, Chris Chelios. And uh, maybe tell us, start off, I, we've talked about how he came to Chicago, how you got him there, but worth repeating that story. Yeah, that's a great story. Uh, my first trade as a general manager in the National Hockey League was trading uh, Dennis Savard uh, to Montreal for Chris Chelios. And the genesis of it came about, uh, I began and had a meeting at the draft in Vancouver with our entire staff and ownership and saying, uh, we've got a young developing player named Jeremy Roenick uh, who could fill in as a number one centerman 
but we really need a superstar on defense. We need someone to anchor our defense and to take minutes and be competitive. And, and uh, I would really like to trade Dennis Savard for that component because we have the backup plan of Jeremy Roenick. And our owner, Bill Wirtz, uh, who is now passed, said, okay, Mike, if you can obtain one of three of these defensemen, then I'll let you make the deal. And I said, who would that be? They said, he said, Chris Chelios, Paul Coffey, or Raymond Bork. And I said, <laughs> You had a good taste. <laughs> that's, I said, well, at least you've got some great players there. I said, uh, okay, it's a deal. I'll pursue the opportunities uh, amongst those three players uh, to see if their teams were interested at all. And uh, we'll go from there. So I'm now the general manager. And, and uh, thank goodness the Michacord arises in Quebec. And there's a disruption a little bit about uh, and an unrest in Quebec about not enough French Canadians on the Quebec team, on the Montreal Canadiens, rather. And uh, that kind of opened the door a little bit. So I literally jumped on a plane and flew to Montreal to visit Serge Savard. I stayed in a, whole ro a hotel room there for about five days, and I would go and visit him every day and, and try to uh, convince him that he should make a trade uh, that would involve Dennis Savard, bring a French-Canadian back to Quebec, back to the Montreal Canadiens, uh, going back into their history. Uh, they had an opportunity to make a selection and didn't. And uh, as a result, uh, this might satisfy your needs in terms of your team and also the needs in terms of the province and, and what was going on in the political world. So we talked back and forth several uh, scenarios and, and then Serge was going on a vacation in the Bahamas. And I said, okay, I'm going to go back to Chicago, but I'll call you. And we can continue this, the discussion. So I called him every day at 8 a.m. He said, Mike, I'm trying to enjoy myself on my vacation. I would keep him on the phone as long as I could. And uh, so we finally come to an agreement after uh, he goes back to Montreal and, and, and his vacation's over. So we again are on the phone and we uh, come to an agreement that uh, we will trade and exchange players, uh, Chelios and Savard. I call up my owner, Bill Wirtz. This is on a Saturday morning. And when Serge and I had that final discussion, I said, uh, Mr. Wirtz, we've got Chris Chelios for Dennis Savard. He said, oh, Mike, I don't know. We, I think we should get a first round draft pick. I said, Mr. Wirtz, my credibility is going to go down the drain. I've been dealing in good faith with Serge Savard for several weeks now, trying to put this deal together. And now you're telling me we need a first round pick. He said, that's right. I call up Serge, I apologize to him. And I said, Serge, this is what Mr. Wirtz is demanding now. And he said, oh, he, of course he had a few French words for me that weren't uh, very delightful, but and I understand French swearing. So uh, we got through that. And then I said, let's make a deal. I said, if you give me your second, I will give you in a kind of a bogus scenario in the near future, that second back. 
He said, okay, we'll do it. I go back to Mr. Wirtz and Mr. Wirtz, I said, Mr. Wirtz, I can't get the first, but I got the second. He said, okay, make the deal. So I make the deal. And of course, uh, uh, just an offset to that was that Serge uh, remained the general manager. I got fired, Serge got fired, and the Montreal Canadiens never got that pick back. But the night before, there was a disruption uh, with the Mr. Chelios, with Chris and his buddy Suter up in Wisconsin. They had both graduated up there, and I th think there was a little chaos going on. And that probably tilted the scale in terms of making the deal because I think Serge was, was uh, frightened or uh, didn't want the, feed, the negative feedback because it was a, uh, an incident that involved the, the law. So Chris is now in my office Saturday, just after the trade. I tell him to come down. And, of course, he does. it's not that far to get to Chicago. He comes in. I don't think he's, he's too uh, settled because he's frightened of Iron Mike. And I don't even know the back background uh, of what happened, but uh, he certainly knew. And, and he said, look at Mike, I appreciate that you're bringing me Chicago. I'm a Chicago boy. Uh, we've got a, a disruption with the law uh, with Mr. Suter and I. And, and he said, I would really appreciate it if you could give us some assistance. I will pay for everything. In fact, I don't want uh, Mr. Sh uh, Suter or Gary to, to even know about this. I said, Okay, we can do that. We settled out. The long and the short of it is the culture of the Chicago Blackhawks changed that day from the two previous seasons I spent with them. We went to the final four, two of those previous seasons, but Chris brought an element into the locker room of accountability that this club needed, that this organization needed. A fierce competitor demanded a lot of his of his. Uh, teammates, a really respectful guy, a really talented player. And when we first started the season, the fans were booing myself and Chris. And it wasn't that long thereafter that they started to recognize this guy is a superstar. And they backed that off. Of course, the team was gaining a lot of momentum and, and doing well, and, and we're having a great season. And because of uh, – uh, Chris's influence in the locker room uh, amongst all the players and, and including the better players uh, was very noticeable. And uh, I had a strong relationship with him. He was extremely respectful and competitive. And he brought, uh, again, an element that this team hadn't had for years and maybe never uh, from a, from a blue liner and, uh, uh, it just added that much more to the culture of the team. And I think the future from that point on of the Chicago Blackhawks uh, until he was uh, removed from, from the Blackhawks and went on to Detroit, that uh, he was the most impactful player that they had probably since Bobby Hall. Talk about what he brought on the ice. Obviously a strong influence off. What did he bring on the ice? Well, he could play any situation he wanted. He was very, very mean, very competitive, uh, <clears throat> could take charge in any situation, play any special team you wanted. Uh, and 
wasn't a big, big man, but very, very strong, could take minutes, could play as much as you want him to play. Uh, his fitness uh, levels are, are well known, particularly when he went to Detroit and he's still becoming an older player and still has a stamina of a 25-year-old. So he influenced uh, the team. I went and acquired Steve Smith as well from Edmonton for Dave Manson and teamed uh, he and Shelly together, uh, Steve Smith and Shelly, and they logged over 30 minutes a night. But Chelios was the driving force on the ice in terms of competitive values. And he wasn't a very verbal guy in the locker room, uh, a no-nonsense guy, a guy that uh, demanded respect and, and respect amongst everyone. And as I said, uh, uh, the personality of the team, and I talked about it on the show before with, about the Flyers and Bobby Clark insisting that we develop that, uh, evolved around Chelly, and of course he influenced some of the bad boys, if you like, in Chicago and Jeremy Moronic and Eddie Balfour and, and the personality of the team evolved around Chelly and that competitive spirit. Uh, we were very aggressive, probably the most penalized team in the league, but also one of the most successful. Was he fitness crazed at that time? Because Certainly later in his career, there was the stories about going to Muscle Beach and working out in L.A. and uh, putting stationary bikes in, sa- in the sauna and riding for half an hour, stuff like that. He was extremely fit, and uh, he did it in a quiet way. He, he wasn't uh, boisterous about it, but when I went there, we really emphasized fitness, and we established that in the franchise as well. There, when I first went to Chicago, there was zero equipment for for fitness. It was like, are you kidding me? I came from Philadelphia at Pat Grochi and every modern machine that you could think of for the players to work with. There was nothing in Chicago, but by the time Chris got there, there was all kinds of equipment and he went about it in his own quiet way. Uh, but uh, certainly well-respected. I mean, Michael Jordan was in the locker room next door and he and Michael became buddies and it was obviously and, and if you've watched that recent uh, uh, Netflix show on Michael Jordan the demands he put on his team in a very vocal way Chris put those demands on his team if you like I like to describe it as his team uh, in a quiet way so uh, it was an interesting uh, acquisition a long-winded explanation about Mr. Wirtz and my first trade as an NHL general manager, but one of the most significant in the history of the NHL and Chicago. It's amazing that he was able to play and retire at age 48 after, what was it, uh, 26 seasons, something like that. But I got to tell you, though, because uh, that wasn't surprising to me. When he was in Chicago, he says, Mike, I'm going to play until I'm 50 years old. I said, you got to be kidding me. He says, no, I'm going to play. So he didn't quite reach 50, but he got the 48. And, and he was, he loved to play hockey. He just loved it. And he was bound and bet that he would, would do it. And uh, regardless of how he was preparing the off season, like you said, on in Malibu or wherever he was training, he, he came with a mindset every single day that, was extremely uh, 
impactful for the group. I mean, you just don't take it practice off. He would work so hard, his lips would turn purple in practices. I said, Shelly, I don't know how you do it. He didn't even respond. He would just work until literally his lips would turn purple from the energy he would expand. We do skating drills, tough skating drills, not necessarily bag skates, but tough skating drills. And he would be the leader in every category and he could skate well, but he also was just that intense about practice and preparation and, and the rest of the team could see it. You said he was respectful, but did you have any battles? I didn't. He's one player I didn't have any battles with because I played him so much. We didn't have, he didn't have time to say anything to me. He had a few battles with his teammates. Like he would turn on the, on the, on the bench and tell somebody to, you know, let's pick it up. Ronick, let's pick it up or whoever he's going to address. Uh, we need you now and, and things like that, but let's, let's get stronger here. Let's get quicker. Let's get faster. Let's get more competitive. Let's get meaner. Let's get physical. So uh, he, he, he was a great teammate though. They, the, the players, we had great chemistry in that team, great people and, and great players. And I'll tell you one thing though, they had a lot of fun off ice and, I didn't mind because they came today every day to work. And that was all I asked of them. Well, three-time Norris winner, three-time Stanley Cup champion, and uh, uh, the all-time leader for playoffs game played. So uh, an amazing career. And it was 26 seasons. So you mentioned Jeremy Roenick. Let's fast forward and uh, talk about him. Uh, and, and let's start with uh, a great story about you drafting him eighth overall in 1989. <laughs> Talk about that draft in Montreal and how, how you first met Jeremy Roenick. Well, that's always an interesting story as well. So I'm in a restaurant and uh, I go to the men's room and I'm standing at the urinal and I get this tap on the shoulder and I look around like, how unusual is that? Like, what's going on here? And uh, it's Jeremy. He's tapping me on the shoulder. He said, I want to make sure you draft me tomorrow. I'm what you need in Chicago. And I'm like, who are you, kid? Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> so he said, no, I'm dead serious. He said, I want you to draft me tomorrow. So we have a, a brief conversation in the washroom. And I go back out. And now there's chaos in, in the restaurant. Some tablecloth got caught on fire. And all of a sudden, they're rolling some lady on the floor to put a fire out because her dress is on fire. And Jeremy's, you know, his personality, he's in there helping. But uh, that uh, particular draft, we did draft him number one. And uh, that's how the relationship started. Uh, he said, I want to play for you. I like your style. And, and uh, that's how it all started. And then he came to Chicago. He was a very uh, youthful individual. Uh, a lot of energy, a lot of pizzazz. Uh, we sent him to the Quebec Major Junior A League, uh, and he played there for a little bit. We had some injuries. We were able to find the loophole to bring him up because at that time, if he had so many injuries, you could uh, go into the junior resources that you had. And we called him up, and he stayed, and uh, he never wanted to play in junior hockey. He started actually went back to university. Yeah, I think he was in the BC for about two weeks. He says, 
I don't want to do this. I'm not a student. I want to play hockey. Then he goes to the Quebec major junior A. We assign him there after this is after training camp. And then of course he comes up and, and uh, has a great illustrious career. But uh, I had him as a youngster and uh, uh, a rookie and a, a very talented player, but he was really schooled by three individuals and his two line mates, Michelle Goulet and Steve Larmer, would be coaching him on the bench consistently, particularly Michelle, and then Chris Chelios influencing. And there was other players too, like Dwayne Sutter, Brett Sutter we had eventually, but uh, he was a pretty fiery guy in the locker room and he'd be talking all the time. And I could hear from my office, Jeremy, sit down and be quiet. And that would be one of those people I just mentioned. Uh, he's trying to get the team fired up and, and brought it to the, to the level on the ice, though. We played a playoff game in St. Louis against St. Louis. We were in St. Louis in a series that was tough. And Jeremy got his teeth knocked out in his shift. He come over, he spit his... Featherstone cross-checked him. Uh, pardon me? Glenn Featherstone yes. cross-checked him in the chops. He spit his teeth into the bench and said, Let go, let's go, boys. He went out and basically championed the team, and we won the series and won the game. So uh, he had a big influence, uh, you know, became a great scorer. And, again, he had super line mates to play with, and he knows that. He's very, again, respectful. Uh, had a lot of uh, influence on him as a youngster, uh, more as a father figure and a big brother than uh, with his off ice uh, activities, uh, trying to counsel him and rein him in. And, and uh, I think he respected that. And we built a very, very strong relationship as well. Uh, fiery at times. Yes. Uh, confrontational at times. Yes. We had our, our, our chats. Yes. But the bottom line, when he put the gear on, and played, he played hard and played well for us. And a big part, again, of the solution, a lot of pressure on him. You have to think that now he's replacing in the in the minds of, of the Chicago Blackhawk fans, Dennis Savard, who was a folk hero there. They sold tickets just based on Dennis' artistry and his ability to, to play hockey and the spinoramas and electrifying plays. So Jeremy was more of a straight line, hard nose player, more physical and bigger, but he had big shoes to fill, and he did. And you obviously knew very quickly that he was going to be a great player because you traded Savard. Yes, I did, and and uh, Jeremy proved very quickly that he was ready to play even as a young age. It didn't take him much to catch up to the speed of the game and then uh, what was necessary to play at that level. I believe he came out of high school hockey and then made those transitions, short transitions, college hockey and junior hockey. Next thing you know, he's playing for the Chicago Blackhawks. So uh, a quick transition, that just speaks volume about his ability, his talent, his preparation, his love of the game. Yeah, he was playing at a prep school before he made the jump. So yes. Thayer Academy. There, yes. Yeah. Um, just going back to that draft briefly, you, you take him first, eighth overall, your first pick, but – Prior to that meeting in the washroom, where did he stand in your draft rankings? Was he going to be the guy, or did he sway? He, he was amongst the, the guys that we were going to pick. But when he made that 
declaration, then we said, I said, we're taking him. He wants to be a Blackhawk. So, and it wasn't much argument. I mean, the scouts re- recognized how good he was and, and how well he played and, and what his potential. And that's always a big word when it comes to drafting, the potential. But uh, he f- fulfilled that potential in, in spades and certainly became one of the best players in the Blackhawk history and the NHL. So I think that uh, he, he was able to, and maybe because of his youth and enthusiasm, deflect the pressures that would have been there to replace Savard, Dennis Savard, that is. And, and uh, he just played on. And again, he had great teachers in the locker room, great people to look up to, to teach him how to be a pro. And that's all part and part of a, any young player, the process, how he's going to be influenced in the locker room, who's going to direct them. I mean, the coach can coach and you can speak all you want and tell them what to do, but they really are influenced by their peers more than anybody else. And uh, it's typical, even in a high school, I taught high school and it, a lot of us are, are influenced by our peers more than anybody else, not our parents, not our not our teachers, it's the peers that you hang out with or lean on or uh, become into your circle of life. And uh, he had great people to lean on. I'd have to think his style of play would help to turn the fans in Chicago, disappointed understandably with Savard leaving, but you know he was a fairly electrifying player himself, a great skater. And as you mentioned, not afraid to get physical, all those elements would have sold. It really did. And that was part of the personality that was being developed in Chicago. Uh, I can recall coaching the Flyers and going into Chicago, loving it, because I knew we had a tough team. And going up those 16 set of stairs into the stadium and that organ blowing and the, and the glasses vibrating on the sides and the national anthem, and you can feel the energy. Our Flyer team loved it. And we built that team around that and, and, the, the arena was only 185 feet long and people would know this, but the goal line extended was 16 feet narrower than center ice red line. So there was a funnel and they fit right into us. We built our team around that, the physical play. And you just mentioned how physical Jeremy was. He was physical. He could get on the, on the hunt quickly. He'd be on the defenseman quickly. He had great the line mates that could read him, but he would be first in and, and reckless and, and physical. Our whole team built up, up uh, on that personality and that, uh, that kind of attitude where a lot of teams didn't want to come into Chicago to play. They just think, if we can get in there and get out without getting hurt, we're going to be in good shape. They didn't even think about the points. So those I don't know if those personality teams exist anymore or uh, it's hard to identify, but we definitely did have that kind of physical uh, attributes to our game, but also the people that we employed and the superstars were all physical as well in their own way. And that made a big, big part. And of course, uh, uh, the goaltending was, uh, the personality was, was, you couldn't get a ticket. You couldn't get it. I first went, there was 8,000 people on an average going to the games we went to the final four the first two years, and now we've got this team, and you can't buy a ticket to get in the Chicago Stadium any longer because the personality of the team, and it, it was at the time, too. We had Michael Jordan in championships with the Bulls playing in the same building 
Ditka having the Super Bowl champion in Chicago and and their personality so fit right in with the teams that uh, the people in Chicago loved and enjoyed. Did you ever cross paths with the other Iron Mike, Ditka? Yeah, I did. And and uh, also uh, when I was there, Phil Jackson was coaching. Phil and I did a commercial together, a car commercial. Uh, again, the locker room was just down next door to us. Uh, so, yeah, we uh, as coaches uh, would run into each other from time to time. And, and uh, you know, all all those teams had great success at the same time. So the energy, there was times I, I can remember like, – Chicago was a great uh, convention center uh, in terms of people coming. There'd be 100,000 people come in on a weekend for a convention, and they'd be going to one of those three teams to watch or all of them. So it was the energy downtown in Chicago was electrifying. And then particularly when we went to stand like a finals of the Final Four and the Bulls were winning every other night. I would go and watch the Bulls play on the night off. So we'd play every other night, Blackhawks, Bulls. Blackhawks, Bulls, and that stadium was rocking every single night. Personalities from both teams, uh, Scotty Pippen, Michael Jordan, uh, Jeremy Roenick, uh, Chris Chelios, Eddie Balfour, Steve Larmer, Michelle Goulet. I mean, we had it all rocking, so it was, it was great fun. Pretty special time. Now, you mentioned that, you know, Jeremy, obviously a personality, outgoing guy, some would say a free spirit at times. How difficult was it to manage, or did you ever have a situation arise that took special attention? No, he was really respectful, and uh, I would be giving it to him sometimes. I said, look, negative energy is better than no energy. Let's get fired up here. So we'd have a look, but I can tell you some stories too. I told you about the story taken on the, the, the team to Banff on the respite for Michelle Goulet, but uh, on my credit card, everyone in the, in the bar hotel drinks, but there also goes the story that I say, look at guys, I'm taking to Banff and there's no skiing. You guys relax. We're going to practice. And then after I go out skiing with my wife and daughter, the first people I run into, Jeremy Roenick, Chris Chelios, and Eddie Balfour. And they stop and snowplow and spray me with snow. I'm at the base and start giggling. I said, I don't see you. I don't hear you. If Mr. Wirtz finds out that you're skiing and when you break your legs, I'm done. So I don't even see you. I said, get off this mountain right now. So they were out partying a few nights too. And I was coming down in my vehicle with my wife and my daughter again. And we're going to, and all of a sudden I hear these stories about they were walking and having a few pops. <laughs> and they, somebody said, uh-oh, because there's bends in the road. And they, that, they, they're smart. They look out for what I rented and what kind of vehicle. All of a sudden, like I said, they were jumping over the over the guardrail and like in the snow up to their neck so that I wouldn't see them. So it was just uh, quite a group. Uh, again, they they had their great fun off the ice, but they competed on and they had a they had a real great great chemistry amongst them. A lot they of do. fun, a lot of laughs. They knew how to, as coaches often said back in the day, they knew how to play guilty. 
Exactly. And they did tell me, let me tell you, they, but they, they, they knew when to dial it in and, and, uh, you know, we, we go to Edmonton and now we've had that experience. I've had that experience against the Oilers and, and uh, we go in and play them in playoff series. We beat them four straight. I mean, that's unheard of. So, and that series put us in the, against Pittsburgh for the Stanley Cup uh, playoffs for the finals. So again, they knew, they knew how to dial it in when they had to. And, and uh, you know, we won the president's trophy and then we go to the Stanley Cup and uh, we had great, I, I was there, I coached four years. I was there five, one as a manager when Daryl became the coach, but we played 60 playoff games in four years. That's a lot of hockey. And for any franchise, they would love it. And the owners love it because of the financial rewards. Absolutely. A lot of hockey and a lot of personality on those teams. For sure. They, they were fun, the group, to coach. I mean, really, uh, there was so much energy uh, on that bench and, and, uh, some great stories. The, the role, I mean, they got the chemistry. It was, that's why you go to the finals. I mean, uh, they just had it all put together. <clears throat> and um, the best players were always the best players. And one of the stories I can tell about Jeremy as well is that we're playing against Pittsburgh and I forget who slashed him, but broke his thumb. And back in the day, Iron Mike, he, you know, he's demonstrative. So I take him to the, I don't know if you remember this. I take him to the press conference with the cast on and there was no call on the play, but the guy's got my best sentiment's got a broken thumb. Now he's already casted, come back from the hospital. I said, Jeremy, you're going to the press conference with me. He said, what? I said, yeah, I want to show the fans and, and the media that you got a broken thumb and there was no call. So I forget who slashed him, but anyway, uh, he had a personality to go with it. Then, of course, he, he, you know how he was with the media. He, he lapped it right up as well. And it didn't get us any uh, footing with the NHL. But, uh, again, one of those uh, personalities in terms of the team and, and uh, what we could bring to the table. Media-wise, uh, the media loved the team that we had in Chicago because there was always something to write about and always something going on. Always a good quote. The NHL would not have liked that uh, press no, conference. No, I, I'd be fine for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there was always a lot of, uh, for us reporters, lots of great quotes. In the, By the way, the I was fired a few times by the NHL. The biggest one was $100,000 after leaving New York. No other uh, non-playing person has ever had that kind of fine. But there was other fines that I have had uh, um, for 20 $30,000 that were rescinded if I behaved myself for the rest of the year. So I was always in the penalty box. Well, we'll get to some of those stories in upcoming episodes and uh, we'll wrap for this one and uh, some great stories on, uh, on uh, Chris Chelios and Jeremy Roenick. And uh, we'll continue down this road. And as I mentioned off the top uh, in upcoming episodes, we're going to have some of these uh, great players visiting with us to, uh, back and forth with some more. I think our audience would love that, Scott. I think they'd like to hear Chelly and, and Jeremy and, and, and some of the other fellows that we've had on already, the Redskin mess. And we, you know, we had Brett Hall on and Michelle and, and uh, Goulet and Greg, Greg Gilbert. But yeah, they'd, they'd have some great stories to tell too. And, and the, I think uh, behind the scenes stories that people don't hear about, I think 
is kind of the magical part of being involved in pro sport and having relationships with these top, as you said, the whole hall of famers is great. Uh, great being part of. All right. So that's it for episode 16. We look forward to number 17 and more great stories. And uh, until then, everyone stay well and stay safe.